every salad is like a story. So I remember so vividly, like most weekends, almost the entire Saturday, like my husband would take the kids and I would just be sitting in my little office in my house, conjuring up these, these salads. I think it's right now in 2020, it's kind of trite to use the term. It's made with a lot of love, but it actually was made with a lot of love and made with like so much attention to detail. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Hedy McKinnon, a cook and food writer from Sydney, who is perhaps best known for her much-loved recipe books, Community, Neighbourhood and Family, and her salad-making venture that started it all, Arthur Street Kitchen. A career in food was not on the cards for Hedy early on. She actually spent her 20s working in fashion and beauty PR, before deciding to make a change in her 30s to find work that would better fit the lifestyle and flexibility she wanted as a mum to three young kids. As the story now famously goes, Hetty started making salads in her tiny terrace kitchen in Sydney's Surrey Hills, packing them up on her bike and delivering them around the neighbourhood. Before long, her loyal customers were asking for the recipes and three cookbooks later, her name is synonymous with transforming the way many people eat, myself and my partner included. Since relocating to New York in 2015, Hetty has carved out another new chapter in her career, launching an independent magazine called Peddler Journal, which celebrates multicultural food stories and writers, and she's also the host of its podcast, The House Specials. I spoke to Hetty from her home in Brooklyn about her experiences growing up as a Chinese kid in Australia, how she continues to turn her passion projects into successful ventures, and how finding the quieter moments in food have become her signature. I was pretty excited to hear that Hetty has a new cookbook coming out too. And while we couldn't talk about that in too much detail at the time of recording, I can tell you it's called To Asia With Love and it will be released in Australia in October. Here's my chat with Hetty McKinnon. So Hetty, I've read that growing up you had two great passions, one of which was your mum's delicious Cantonese cooking. So can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you? Um, well, I grew up in Sydney. My parents are from the south of China, so they immigrated there. My mum in her early 20s, my dad in his teens, he came out earlier, and they met in Australia and, well, it was like an arranged marriage, like back then, you know, most people were paired up. Um, and, you know, their families knew each other in China, so it was, um, you know, it was it was a good match. And so they... We, we lived in like a suburban part of Sydney. It was a very Cantonese upbringing, you know, like we, it was a very like cross-cultural upbringing because I guess at home we were like any Chinese family. We ate Chinese food. We observed Chinese traditions. And then you go to school and you suddenly have to be Australian. You know, back then, the neighbourhood where I grew up, um, it's a suburb called Kingsgrove. It's um, in southwestern Sydney, not that far from the city, actually. And it was always a very multicultural area. I mean, our school was very multicultural. Not a lot of Asians, though. Um, a lot of European immigrants. 
and you know you could see the waves of immigration at, at the schools that I went to and I always felt like I didn't fit in a little bit you know mm. like and I only really realized that now as an adult really I mean I, I felt like I didn't fit in then but it was just you're just going along with it so you're just trying to fit in so it was very yeah. much that childhood where you know the the child of an immigrant where you're trying to assimilate yeah well, no, I can relate to that. We grew up in the Hurstville area, actually. Oh, which was you not, did? We did, and not particularly Asian back then, but clearly one of the biggest sort of Chinese areas outside of Chinatown in it Sydney re- now. Well, it's one of the, I think it's one of the biggest Chinese populations outside of Asia, I've heard, which yeah. is crazy. I can't believe I'd never meet anyone that grew up in that area. When I say Kingsgrove, <laughs> I usually need to say, oh, it's actually near Hurstville, and people go, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, it was a very, I, I described my childhood as very quiet. You know, my mum as an immigrant, it was a very traditional setup. My dad worked, he worked to, you know, several jobs. He worked at the markets, actually Flemington Markets. He left for work very early and came home at 11 o'clock and then it would be like driving my mum around to get, you know, groceries and going to her favourite stores to pick up things for dinner. And I just remember like my mum cooking all the time like whether it was a meal or like something for future meals like whether it was preserving things and you know we had just food all over the house so um I just remember a lot of food (laughs) (laughs) well growing up in an Asian household the food is very important um but I read that your other interest was books written by Enid Blyton and Jane Austen so what did you love about those stories I think it's like the escapism, you know, like they were very, I still have those books. I think I have some of them in New York with me. But The Naughtiest Girl is a Monitor was my favourite book growing up because, you know, reading about these, these, you know, wealthy girls who didn't look like me, but they went to a boarding school and, you know, they got up to all sorts of mischief. I mean, that was kind of the opposite of my life. So <laughs> I was a good Chinese kid. Um, and so like the, the escapism from Eden Blyton books. And then I remember reading Jane Austen all through university, like just sitting in, at home next to my mother as she should be knitting or doing something next to me. And I'd just be devouring these Jane Austen books because mm. You know, the language is so timeless and so smart and you just can't imagine that it was written so long ago at a time where feminism didn't exist. So you loved food and you loved books, but you actually started your career in public relations and you studied a Bachelor of Social Sciences at UTS. So what drew you to the world of PR? It's a funny story. So... um, (laughs) Going to school in the 80s, you know, it was like a very different time. And I remember I always loved writing, obviously I always loved stories. And I really did want to be a journalist when I was a um, teenager. That was what I really wanted to do. Like I loved magazines. I would spend all my pocket money on magazines. I didn't go, you know, like being a teenager in the 80s in an immigrant household, you don't go out, right? Mm. So you go to the newsagent and you buy these you know music I was obsessed with music too so I'd buy all these music magazines and and fashion magazines and really like magazines were my passion um for a long time but 
when I was in high school, we had a guidance counsellor who said to me, um, you know, you can be a journalist if you want to, but you're not going to make any money and you're probably not even going to get a good job. So if you enjoy that aspect of writing, you know, you probably go into public relations. This was probably when I was at 15 or 16. And I had no idea yeah. what that was. But, you know, you had that little handbook. I don't know if you remember, but you, there was this handbook yes. that you had in high school with, like, you'd have the description of what that job was and then what it entailed. So I kind of read it and I was like, yeah, I think I'm, I'm into this. So I did, for my year 10 work experience, I did one week at Girlfriend Magazine and oh, one right. week at uh, Hill & Knowlton, a big PR company. So I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw myself into this. And it seemed like like public relations is something that um, I could never, ever describe to my mother. Like I think even now she doesn't know what I did for 10 years of my life. <laughs> um, she didn't really like marketing. Like I, I should just say marketing and she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, marketing. But, you know, the actual ins and outs of that career is just like my Chinese isn't even good enough to explain that to her. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think my dad ever really understood even me working in magazines for that period of time. I just, yeah. he understood writer well enough, but yeah, that whole world beyond, you know, he wanted a doctor, he wanted a lawyer, he wanted the standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, got, <laughs> he, he got the lawyer, but didn't get that out of me, unfortunately. Um, but look, so I believe you went into beauty PR for many years and you were in London for about four years. Uh, yes. So what was that experience like and what did a typical workday look like for you back then? I worked in different, I worked in agency side and then internal side of PR. And in Sydney, I worked at a few different places, some fashion companies, um, some uh, lifestyle like an agency that did more lifestyle, like all around beauty, fashion, you know, retail. Um, but then when I moved to London, it, it was really when I specialised. I feel like PR in, in Australia is more like you do a lots of different industries. But when I got to London, I was attempting like a, a PR agency called Modus and it was a fashion, predominantly fashion agency, but had a small P, uh, beauty side and I was working in the beauty side. I worked on actually the Aveda account for, um, you know, the beauty account, yeah. Aveda, for probably three years, quite a long time. Most of the time okay. I was there. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, I worked with a great bunch of people in central London, um, really good friends of mine still. And it was a fun, you know, it's so fun. It's like PR is a fun job for young people. You know, you get to yes. travel. You know, I'd go to like different spas around the world, taking journalists. I did a trip to the Amazon with Helena Christensen, who was shooting a story for us about um, oh, wow. the Brazil nuts that are sourced um, for one of some of the products, some of the Aveda <laughs> products. You know, it's like crazy fun stuff, but chance of a lifetime stuff because it's very few jobs where they, they have budgets to do things like that. But for me, I really did feel like I knew that after I had children, I would not be going back to this job. Like mm. I I already had that in, in my sights. Like it was really fun and I met great people and it was good for a time in your life, like when you're in your 20s. But I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Not that Not that I really even knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't really think about yeah. it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, in your 30s, you did decide to follow a new path into food. And I think you Mm. did have your three young children by this stage and you're back living in Sydney and Surrey Hills. So what prompted that move and how big a decision was it to leave your PR career or the security of full-time work, I guess? It was no decision, really. It was, um, you know, like I had my oldest scout, who's now 14, but she was born in London. And at the time, it, that was probably one of the hardest transitions that I've ever made to motherhood. And I didn't ever think that I would, I mean, not that I was not, I wasn't maternal, but I didn't think that it would be as hard as it was. And I think a lot of that is because I was living away from home. Um, I didn't have my family around. My friends at the time in London, none of them had had kids. And so I just, I didn't think about it before I had her. But when I, after she was born, I was like, I have no support whatsoever. So I remember those first few months after she was born thinking, I cannot get sick because if I get sick, there's no one that can help, like literally no one I can call upon. I mean, that changed after a while. I met, I went to a, like a support, like a postnatal support group, met a great group of mums um, and that changed. But I really knew after I had her, I wanted to be closer to my mum. So right. it was really a non-decision. It was like, I could not get out of there fast enough to be, mm. to be completely honest. And so we moved back to Sydney, to Surrey Hills. And then I didn't really think about going back to work because then I had like two more children in very quick succession. Um, my scout was only three and a half when I had Huck, my youngest. So he's my third. So I had three children under three and a half. So those days were completely like wonderful, but a complete blur. Like I don't remember, you know, like I feel like I have memory loss from <laughs> 2006 to 2010. And like my mum just became like this essential, you know, she was like my everyday. She did, after I had my second, she came every single day to help Mm. me all the way from Kingsgrove. She doesn't drive. She took a train and a bus to my house and then did the same in reverse to go home. Mm. You know, it was just, I could not have done it without her help. So, yeah, that was kind of my, the late 2000s was just having children. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. did you sort of have the idea bubbling away for Arthur Street Kitchen at that time or did that come a bit later? Arthur Street Kitchen's funny because I never really thought of working in food. I liked food but I never thought even thought of myself as a great cook like I never thought oh yeah I want to do this professionally what spurred it really was I wanted to do something where I could stay in the neighborhood Huck was about one when I started the business and to be honest I was doing some like freelance work for a local PR agency and they were like really actually wanting me to come back to work and work for them a few days a week and then that was one catalyst because I had the ideas like I would love just to make like really delicious salads and deliver them around the neighborhood. And it doesn't really sound like a business because it wasn't <laughs> really a business. But then like when this company was asking me to go back to doing PR, I was like, okay, so it's like today I have to make this decision. You know, like today it's either I take this job and go back to that old life or I start making salads and delivering them to my neighborhood 
And I remember telling people, like I remember I saw a friend and, you know, just told her this thing, this idea I had, and she, I remember her look on her face was like, you are insane. That is like the worst <laughs> idea ever. Take the PR job. And I remember going and telling the PR agency I, did, I wasn't going to take it because this is what I was doing. I was going to make salads and deliver them around the neighbourhood. And they thought I was insane. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> Screw them. Like, I think this is a fun idea. And to be honest, what I'll say is there are very few opportunities in life where you're given a very natural break. You know, like mm-hmm. having children is a natural break in a woman's life Whether you know, some people go back to work immediately. Um, but I was in a position where I had a natural break and without thinking or overthinking too much, I just did something that just felt like I could do it, that felt natural to who I was, even though I had no professional training as a, as a cook. I feel very mm. uncomfortable when anyone calls me a chef because I don't see myself that way. You know, I'm just a person that was cooking in my home kitchen, but just, you know, cooking to really nurture people in the community. And, um, right. you know, it was just, I felt really lucky to be here, have that opportunity where I could just step into something that was not very well thought out, that didn't have a business plan. Even to be described as a business, it would be in very loose terms because nothing was really thought through, but I did it because I wanted to give something back to my community um, without thinking that I needed to make X amount of money this year or I needed to meet these goals. You know, there was none of that at all. There was just purely driven by like a passion for the community you live in and a situation that would allow me to stay at home with my kids. Well, I mean, clearly everyone that thought your idea was crazy was incorrect because it took off pretty quickly, I gather. And I mean, for people that aren't familiar with your food, in some ways I think the word salad almost doesn't do it justice because people have very probably quite boring connotations of what a salad can entail. What made your salads different and what were people responding to, do you think? Well, they, I mean, they're delicious. Don't get me wrong. They (laughs) They are. They are. I think the difference with when you're cooking from home and when you're buying something that's been made at a restaurant, every element of that meal, that dish, that salad was thought out to you know the nth degree that I can't tell you how much time I spent working out those those um you know like every salad is like a story so I remember so vividly like most weekends almost the entire Saturday like my husband would take the kids and I would just be sitting in my little office in my house conjuring up these these salads and every single detail was just thought about because I didn't have any training in food, so but I so I thought of the salads as stories. So I would think of, oh well, what's in season? What can I get? Uh, what vegetable can I get? And then so okay, what can I use to build that up? Which grain can I use? And then which herb? Like I for me, like a herbs are like the finishings of the story. So you can't just use whatever herb. It's got to be the right herb for that particular salad, depending on what the inspiration, like what the flavor profile is. So there was just so much time. And because I was really learning to cook 
through those salads. There was just, you know, I think it's right now in 2020, it's kind of trite to use the term. It's made with a lot of love, but it actually was made with a lot of love (laughs) and made with like so much attention to detail. And I don't think I got every salad right. I mean, I'm sure there were some bombs in there, but most of them came together um, and really taught me like so much about cooking and flavors. And it was really the first time I cooked like within community communities like the book is a collection of the salads that I served, 60 of them. But there's a lot of Middle Eastern flavors in there. And, you you know, you have to remember before this, I had never cooked really with Middle Eastern flavors. Like it's not, it's not, spices is not something I grew up eating. You know, I only would have tried it in restaurants. So those recipes are really like a timeline of me learning about everything there is to learn about food, which is obviously an evolving story. I mean, I'm still learning. Um, (laughs) But I think that was one of the, you know, the things that set the salads apart was that they were so, every component was so thought out and and thoughtful in the way they were put together. Mm. And the other element is the fact that there were very few opportunities in life where you're given food straight from the hands of the person who cooked it. And that was what made it really special. And honestly, I didn't plan it that way. Um, It was just like no one else to deliver them. So (laughs) for me, um, you know, it's kind of crazy. I didn't really feel like I was part of the business. Like I didn't mean for me to be the person, you know, that would become like this intrinsic person that made Arthur Street Kitchen what it was. Mm. But as I delivered salads and as we, as I made friendships with the people that I delivered to, learning about them and just realizing, wow, like every week for sometimes twice a week, because some people would order every single day, um, you have this kind of micro chat on their doorstep. And I was really connecting with these people, you know, they became so important to me. Some of them are still, many of them are still some of my best friends. Mm. And I just had never realized that food could bring people together like that. And you mentioned your first cookbook community, which I believe you actually self-published. So what was that process (laughs) like? And how did you know where to begin with publishing your own book? Um. Well, I've always been into paper. I'm a bit of a, like I I mentioned, you know, I love magazines growing up. Mm. So I was also like teaching myself how to write recipes. I've never written recipes before. And some of my, some of my diners had asked for recipes of the things that I'd cooked. So I was writing those down, like teaching myself to write recipes and emailing it to people. So I had some recipes written down. Um, I'd been probably compiling recipes for about a year. and then there was this one one week, one day when I was delivering when like three or four people said to me, you know, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I was like, oh, well, if three people have said it. I think that's a sign. So <laughs> I started kind of putting them together. And I don't know, it just, it, to me, there was not even ever a question of doing it the way I did it. I mean, I just, I wanted to do something beautiful. I wanted it to look like a book, but I never thought that it would go beyond the neighborhood. Like it was never meant for, you know, huge like nas- national public consumption, to be honest. Mm. 
but I thought, you know, I'm going to, I want to have a proper book. I want it to be beautifully presented. I want it to be like a gift to the community. Um, unfortunately, I had to print a thousand because it was like the minimum print run. So I was like, okay, I'll commit to having these in my house for the rest of my life. It's a vanity <laughs> project. You know, other people had said, oh, you know, like self-published books don't sell. So like you're going to have them forever. So I was like, okay, I can deal with that. But, you know, really strange things happen sometimes in life. And this book resonated with people all over the country. I remember, I don't even know, I think it was featured on the design files. So I always credit, you know, Lucy Fegans for featuring me on, on I think, Tasty Tuesdays. I don't know if they still do it anymore. I I think they they might. But they ran three three of my recipes in the December of 2013. And by the second recipe, I had sold out of books. Oh, wow. They have just like this incredible reach or, and people just went crazy for the book. And I, I was, I packaged and sold all of them online. So I was like, you know, mailing out every day. My house was like, and every book was wrapped beautifully and so much attention to detail, but I did not expect that at all. And then I had all these back orders and like literally, you know, life is so strange. Literally the day I was about to email the printer and say, yes, give me another thousand because that's the minimum. I got a phone call out of the blue from a lady called Mary Small, who turns out was from um, Plum Books, which is an imprint of Pam McMillan, and said that she'd already presented the book to her publishing department and they wanted to publish it. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is going on right now? (laughs) Like I've never spoken to Mary she had gotten the book from a friend of hers who shared an office with one of my um, regulars. So it was published again by Pam McMillan the following year, so 2014. Yeah, I remember being recommended that book from a friend and um, and obviously you've released two more cookbooks since then, Neighbourhood and Family. Um, and I have to say, I mean, those books have literally transformed the way that we eat in our house. Like. I mean, I've been vegetarian, well, pescatarian, I suppose, for more than 20 years now. And my partner and I actually used to eat separate meals quite often because he was not (laughs) down with vegetarian food at all. But he actually now does most of the cooking in our house and it's mostly from your books. And he's a meat-loving Irishman, so (laughs) that's really saying something. I can't tell you how often I hear that, that people who normally need to have a slab of meat you know they can they can deal with the salad, but it's got to have a protein, you know, on the plate. I hear this all the time, and I think, particularly in community, is you know, community is like my seminal work. It's like where I learned how to cook and how to put food together. Those salads came together in a certain way because I was feeding someone who, for many of my my diners, that would be their one chance I left their. Um, desk during the day would be come Mm. to come and collect their salad from me on their doorstep so for me it was really important to put together a salad that was going to be hearty and nurturing and um, would get them through the afternoon they wouldn't be hungry in an hour Um, that's why there's very few leafy salads in community I don't think there's any they're all based with some hearty vegetables hearty grains or legumes Mm. 
And so those meals, when people now cook them at home, I think there's a lot of meat lovers who suddenly realise, well, I could eat this dish and I'm not going to be hungry. Like this is the main meal. And I think that's the big shift in people's perceptions of what a salad is. You know, it's not a side dish. It's a main meal. Your books were, well, at least community was starting to take off in a very big way. But in 2015, your family decided to relocate to New York um, and you've been living in Brooklyn ever since. I imagine that must have been quite a change, well, big change for all of you. So how did you feel about the prospect of moving at that time? It was kind of my decision, to be honest. I mean, we actually left Australia in 2014, um, October 2014. My husband was offered the opportunity to move to the New York office of his law firm. And he initially had just said to his bosses, oh, my wife isn't going to want to go. Like her her books had just come out and come out of May of that year. Um, things were kind of taking off. But, you know, I just always feel a real discomfort with success in a way. Like I felt like after Community came out, there was a lot of people wanting things for me. Like mm. there was people, you know, wanting to order my salads. And I was like, I'm not even interested. Like I just want to keep serving my community. I had people telling me, why don't you just, I don't understand why you just don't hire people and you, then you can serve all of us. And I'm like, but <laughs> that is not what my business is about. Like it's not about volume. It's about the quality relationships that, you know, that I can while I'm feeding people so I just felt really overwhelmed actually after the book came out with how I was going to pivot the business to satisfy the demand and I actually didn't have any answers I was feeling like well I'm going to have to like open a proper kitchen to be able to deal with this I don't really want to run a kitchen a commercial kitchen mm. um, I was feeling a lot of pressure actually and then when the New York option came up I was like I could blow this to pieces and just go and start this again from scratch in another city and there's nothing I love more than, you know, doing that. Like the climb to me is so attractive. So, yeah, I really thought I could make this work in Brooklyn, like not knowing anything about I mean, I've been to New York (laughs) before and I've been to Brooklyn before, but I haven't been for many years and I've never lived in New York. So, But I had this idea that I could you know, translate my model to another city. I mean, the saddest bit was really kind of leaving those people that I'd been feeding for four years. Mm. You know, that was really hard. But, yeah, moving to America, it's like I've always wanted to live in New York. I did not expect that we would actually do it, particularly after having three children and Mm. everything that that would entail. But I don't know, there's a part of me that just loves the adventure and the unknown and starting again so it was like so exciting so we actually left Australia and we traveled around Europe for a couple of months um, with the kids and then came to New York in January of 2015 which happened to be the coldest winter of the last 40 50 years (laughs) it was quite the shock I mean it snowed it felt like it snowed I'm sure I'm exaggerating but it felt like it snowed like every second day and so what has your life ended up looking like over there? I mean, career-wise, did you have to start over in some ways? Has it opened up more opportunities? 
so when I came over here, my main thing was I really actually wanted to open a place, which is kind of ironic because I didn't want to do it in Sydney. But I was like, well, New York's that kind of place where you kind of, it, there's this energy and you just feel like oh, anything is possible here, anything is possible. Whereas in reality, it's like the hardest place to do anything. But but then I did cook from a commercial kitchen. So I actually did deliver salads in Brooklyn for about six months, which is probably not that well advertised. But um, it was a very different experience, though, because you're not allowed to cook from home here. And the all of the seasons are really extreme. I did open a commercial, uh, so it's not a commercial kitchen. It was a community kitchen with a friend um, where we had pop-ups and uh, we did that for three years. It actually, we just closed it in March, actually, around the time of COVID. Our lease had actually run out. Luckily, at the same time, the, sh- the shutdown happened. So it was all mm. sort of concurrent and we were very fortunate that our lease had ended at, in the same month. But that was a, um, it was called Neighbourhood Studio and we did um, we did a lot of shoots there, actually. We also rented it out to other people to shoot in. So that was kind of, I had always wanted to do that. I did it. And then now I'm kind of like really happy to do more writing and to work on Peddler. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about Peddler. So I only recently discovered this and I gather it's a an independent magazine that you launched back in 2017. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you started it? Yeah, I mean, it probably goes back to my love for magazines. I always think, you know, I really love independent publishing. I'm very fortunate that I work with big publishers for my books. But there's an element of bringing an edition of something together, which I really love. Um, It really kind of ticks a lot of creative needs of mine. And after I moved to the US, you know, there's, there's a few things that really spurred the creation of Peddler. Um, One is being away from home and feeling a great nostalgia for just everything that you grew up with. You know, your mum's cooking, the memories of childhood, memories of home, memories of dishes, just all of that. And I wanted to be able to write about that and have an outlet for that, those feelings of nostalgia and of celebrating small moments around food which commercial food media just does not allow Mm. um so that was one driving force the other thing that really inspired me to create peddler was just seeing the lack of opportunity for people of color in mainstream media in the u.s and hopefully that is changing now with the uh, recent things that have happened over here um, with black lives matters and you know, the shakedown of food media. But honestly, I kind of looked at what was going on with the big magazines and the food just felt loud and just incredibly like clickbaity and trendy and it was all about celebrity chefs and I'm just not interested in that side of food. And as a person who is completely you know absorbed by food 24 hours a day that side of food was just not interesting to me and so I thought when are people like me (laughs) gonna have the chance to have our our voice heard 
And maybe there is something in children of immigrants who really speak a different way and who are never really given those opportunities to tell stories in the way we want to tell them. You know, like I do write for a lot of big publications and, you know, to an extent your recipes, you know, you're you're writing these recipes to conform to an editorial um, platform that already exists. And whereas I can see that that's fine. I mean, you have to give people what they want in a way, but Peddler for me is just a way to do what, you know, to do what I want really mm. is to write the stories and to share the stories in the way I want to share them. And that is to give, it's not just people of color who write for Peddler, but I would say 90% of them are. And to look for people who have never written before when someone's sends me a story and they don't expect me to even get back to them because that's the way the industry works. And I reply to them and not only that I want to, I want you as a first time writer to write this story, but I'm also going to pay you for it because the message I want to send is you don't have to be a certain type of person to write, you know, in food media and you don't have to only write trendy stories about celebrities to get published in food media and so it's it's been an incredible journey because when I put together um, the Chinatown issue, which was issue one, with my colleague Shirley Kai, who is an amazing person to work with. She's Australian also. And, you know, she's just spurred me on every time I say I'm going to do something. She just, yes, she just tells me. She's that person that tells you it's a great idea, <laughs> even if it's not so. But sometimes you just need that encouragement. Yeah. Um, but, you know, putting that together to have something themed Chinatown, I think in 2020 it wouldn't be that unusual. But in two, 2017 it actually was to have something themed Chinatown to be written by predominantly people of colour with an audience that would be presumed to be people of colour. I mean, that's the other thing is like mainly when you look at food media, you the main audience is that the presumed audience is that it's a white audience. Mm. So I put in recipes that I was like, no one's going to get this, but I don't care because this is the story I want to tell. I want to tell the story of making these can- these little known Cantonese dumplings called gokje dumplings with my mother because it's an important memory and I, I think that the sentiments that I share, other people can relate to, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of, that issue was just like a lot of my recipes, a lot of my writing. I had a few contributors too. Um, but the way people responded to it was just like not anything I could ever imagined. I didn't think anyone would want to read the stories, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I just thought it was just like this is just what I think is good and this is what I think is these are just the stories that I want to tell but people would email me and say and not particularly just Chinese people like just you know people these stories just touched people and I would be hearing of people like reading it to each other like out loud like couples reading it because they love the story so much or people crying because this one of the stories reminded them of their grandmother and I just realized, wow, there's people calling out for this type of food journalism that is more than just about what's loudest. You know, we can take a step back. And that's what I really did 
with Peddler, with the way it's put together, with the photography. We just wanted it to be really quiet, actually, and to really, mm. you know, be almost a rebuttal to everything else that was really happening in food media and to really like get people to just take, just to remember what we all loved about food to start with. Mm. And that's not like as great as a meal you have in a five-star restaurant is the ones that really resonate with you and the ones that will make you remember and feel and feel emotion is what your mother made or your grandmother made or your your mother's hands as she was cooking. I mean, this is what we carry with us forever. Mm. Well, I've also really been enjoying your podcast called The House Specials, which takes listeners behind the scenes of people featured in the magazine. Um, but yeah, I found the stories really fascinating. And particularly with your episode, the the final one of season one, because you record out in the field, I did feel completely transported to the streets of New York yeah. and Chinatown. And, you know, some, somehow even hearing you cook was enough to make me start to feel hungry. <laughs> it's quite yeah. amazing that an audio production can evoke, um, yeah, something almost as strong as watching it, you know, on a TV show yeah, or something. Yeah, I, I actually think audio evokes a stronger reaction actually because mm. when you are not seeing, you know, sounds are so evocative and immersive. So when you're not seeing something, you have to imagine yourself in that situation when it's the sounds because sounds are very evocative of you know they, they spur memories um so I think that that's what we were trying to do with the first season is to really invite the listener into every scene mm. um and to tell like a narrative style that I don't think has been done that much in food podcasting Mm. And look, I mean, you mentioned COVID and Black Lives Matter. I mean, I imagine life in New York at the moment must be feeling a little bit strange. What what has the last few months been like over there? It's it, It's been really overwhelming in a way. And we felt like we only just really turned a corner in terms of I felt like everything was going to be okay. And in terms of COVID, I felt like, oh, by July, we will be fine. Everything will be, you know, we would have, you know, flattened the curve and New York would be out and doing stuff. And although we're starting to reopen, there is still a sense that it could go pear-shaped at any time, Mm. you know, if if people don't go out with masks and don't do social, don't practice social distancing. It just feels like we're really kind of, on the razor's edge of, you know, Mm. it could go bad again. Um, And then, you know, Black Lives Matter's happened and that kind of added another layer of, um, you know, I I wonder, I think it's a a very necessary thing that uh, that happened, a movement that happened that people are talking about these issues. It's a really, it's a necessary yet incredibly uncomfortable conversation. And, it's been incredible to watch from a historic point of view, but also, you know, I think this this time will go down in history as 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 a huge learning moment for the world. And I don't think we're there yet. I mean, you definitely see things and you go, oh, they haven't seen the light yet. You know, people are still yeah. trying to see the light. But yeah, it's it's everything has changed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> everything has changed. 
look, you're clearly a very creative person, but you've also been able to turn your ideas into successful businesses and income streams, which I think a lot of creative people struggle with. Can you share a few insights around what you think has really worked for you? I don't know if I'm very business-minded, to be completely honest. Like I kind of do things rashly without thinking too much, but sometimes I would say that they're the best that's the best way of, you know, doing something that's really authentic to you. In the early days, definitely I had a lot of people emailing me, say, asking me about, you know, like how to set up a business and how to do something like Out the Street Kitchen and how does this work? And I was like, I don't really have that many answers because I was doing something that fit into my lifestyle that satisfied what I needed personally. But I think, you know, sometimes taking, it sounds a bit irresponsible, but kind of not thinking about something that much. Like if you feel a passion for something and you have a real need to do something creatively, I think the key is to try to do something that is within your means financially, like something where there's not a huge outlay. Like even if it's a grand idea that could end up Say, for example, my thing could have ended up as a cafe, but to start in a way that you're not outlaying a heap of money and to try to do a lot of things yourself. Like to to this day, I do almost everything myself. Like Mm. I do my own photography now. Um, My new book I shot all myself. I do all my own social media. I do my own websites. To try and learn, like for, for a small business, to outsource that stuff is is going to cost you just so much money, you know, and that's money you can save if you just spend the time to learn like a platform. Like I'm not, I'm no website developer, but, you know, I've spent enough time on Squarespace to learn how to build a website that's decent. So I always say, you know, this finding the things that you can do yourself is a mm. huge one. And also, you know, like, People ask me about authenticity a lot, like how do I do something that's authentic? And I was like, well, if you have to ask that question, it's probably not authentic. <laughs> I was just you thinking know, like, that exactly. Not in, a, not in a derogatory kind of way, but I feel like, you know, when people try and replicate things that they've seen, like just you gotta you got to do something that's right for you, you know, that, that mm. speaks to you, that speaks to your lifestyle and who you are as a person. And the businesses, businesses, I kind of do in air quotes, that I've started were all very personal. And that's the thing that runs very clearly down kind of every single project that I do is that it's all very personal, Mm. but not in a way where I'm just like sharing every single aspect about myself on social media, which I don't. But it's about like allowing yourself to be a bit vulnerable and to like share those aspects of yourself that you probably don't always feel that comfortable in sharing. Yeah. But for me personally, that's when people connect with what I'm doing. So Mm. it's, for me, it's not only, it's not really just about writing a cookbook, for example, like my cookbooks are stories and they're very personal stories, but I think in that you kind of realize when people connect to it, it's like people realize that we're not that different. We can be growing up in many different ways and in many different types of households and in many different countries, but the things that, you know, bring us together are all quite similar. So 
Mm. I feel like that's when the personal and being open to sharing a bit of yourself is a great way to connecting with other people in a way that's authentic to who you are. Yes, yeah. And I'm sure like anyone working for themselves, there's been some challenges too. What's been some of the harder moments or perhaps the pitfalls you've faced along the way? Um, The challenges with me definitely have been staying as a full-time mother and working at the same time. So I work full-time and I'm a full-time mum. And for me, that has been the greatest joy with challenges because, you know, you're always, I don't think the kids even realise I'm working half the time, like because my work life and my private like my family life are kind of seamless, you know, like I'm kind of on my computer for half an hour and then I'm in the kitchen making something and I could be developing a recipe. But the kids just, I'm just always cooking. So that it's like no big deal to them. So it's not a challenge in a way. Like I would not have, I just feel so lucky that I've been able to do that in my life is to be the full-time carer for my kids, to be with them all the time, the person that does homework with them. And then to also have a full career where I'm working for myself and, and doing things my own way. So, um, but it's certainly a juggle. I, I mean, I won't lie. You know, you're mm-hmm. constantly on the run and, you know, I have three kids. Luckily, they're getting to the stage now where they're fairly self-sufficient and they can get themselves places when we were allowed to leave the house. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, that's been, I think my my juggle, my struggle has paid off, though. You know, it's like I would never have wanted it any other way. Mm. Well, yeah, I guess for someone who once said they didn't plan on cooking for a living, <laughs> you've really made quite a, <laughs> quite a name for yourself as a bit of a pioneer in the food scene. What are you most proud of and what do you hope to achieve going forward? Oh, look, I have to say I'm <laughs> I'm actually like just, so honored that anyone would trust me so much to cook my recipes like it is such a commitment to cook someone's recipe like I don't know if you think that but for me I'm just like when someone it's like when someone opens your book and cooks your recipe they are inherently showing trust in you and they're inviting you into their home so I feel like over the years I've just been invited into so many people's homes and been made like a part of their family, like the way my books, but particularly community, has impacted on people's lives. And, you know, the stories that I've been told, it's just mind-blowing. I didn't ever think that writing about food and sharing a recipe could change people's lives and I've seen like WhatsApp groups of people, families that live in different parts of the world and this WhatsApp group is devoted entirely to my recipes (laughs) and it's only about my recipes and it's like when you hear things like that and you just go, this is such a privilege to do what I do. Like it's such a privilege to, to bring like joy and positivity and this connection that is really kind of beyond it's not real it's not about me it's about the food and I'm really proud of that actually I'm really and that's what really spurs me is this like whenever I just see like one person cook one of my recipes I'm just like you know I've sold a lot of books but it's still like one recipe that's what gets me it's like you trusted me enough to cook one of my recipes and 
I'm grateful because as a home cook, I know what that takes. And what does the rest of 2020 look like for you? Oh, my God. Um, probably inside a house, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. I think any other year, like 2020, who knows? Uh, we have no idea what things are going to look like in the next few months. I mean, we're actually moving house soon, so that will occupy us for a lot of the summer. The kids, are, My kids are on summer holidays right now. And normally at this time, we probably would have been in Australia. And I would have been back in Australia to do my book tour for my new book, which is out in October. And now that's probably all going to be virtual. So right. um, I'm super excited. I mean, I'm I'm a little, I'm kind of bummed that I can't be there to talk about this new book because it's, it's not about the PR actually. It's about like that chance of actually speaking to normal people and, you know, the people that cook from your books. And I love just meeting people who cook like home cooks who cook every day. I mean, they're the people that actually inspire me. So it's, it's, I'm sad that I'm not going to have that this time. But we're working on the new issue of Peddler, which will tie in with the next season of the house specials. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly done that in the different chapters of your career and by making some big moves to live and work in other countries. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? I would say one of the bravest moments was really leaving Sydney in 2014, is leaving at a time when, you know, like your star is on the rise, like, you know, your, like, I know that my life, my career probably would have been very different had I stayed in Australia. You know, the way that it's turned out is that I've been away from Australia almost the entire time my books have been available. I've written three books, four books, almost four books away from Australia. That was, that was certainly risky. And, it, you know, you have to balance up career or personal and they're not always mutually exclusive in my life. So it was definitely a risk and I've just been really lucky that people, readers in Australia and home cooks in Australia have continued to embrace my work even though I haven't lived there for most of the time that they've had my work. And I wouldn't know, maybe I am a risk taker, I don't think about this too much, but sometimes in life I feel like you just have to take an opportunity when it presents itself to you. So it was never going to be probably be offered to us again. So it was kind of now or never and sometimes taking that risk reaps rewards. And you've inspired many people with your creativity and cooking, but who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? normally not famous people usually <laughs> you know like my mother is the most inspiring person to me just from a, a personal level just her trajectory in life and having to leave a country and it's you know it's not a unique story it's a common story but you know having to leave a country and go through several other countries to get to her destination and just just the woman of fortitude that she is, you know, her, my dad, her husband died, you know, my, my dad died when I was a teenager and she really had to reinvent herself. She's had to reinvent herself several times just to, just to live, 
you know, mm-hmm. just to put food on the table. So that's what I find the most inspiring. So my mother and all the other people like her, there's, there's people who have toiled to just for the basics in life, just to give their children a better life than the one that they had. Yeah. And if there's someone listening out there who might be wanting to make a brave leap in their career, do you have any final tips for them? I think just trust your gut. I trust my gut a lot. You know, when, I, when I'm offered opportunities that I think could be, you know, financially rewarding but don't feel right, I never do them. I think about it, of course, and I will weigh up those, you know, pros and cons. But at the end of the day, I always trust my gut. And my gut has never, I mean, it's, it's kind of banal to say this, but it's, it's never done me wrong. If I don't feel comfortable doing something, I, I will never take that opportunity. It doesn't matter how much money mm. or whatever you can throw me because the brand, I call it a brand, but it's not really a brand. But, you know, like the business that I've developed is more important than you know, selling your soul for a brief minute. But yeah, just really trusting what you, I think women have in particular have great intuition. And I think we actually know what's right more than we realize we do. So just really trusting that gut. And sometimes it's not always great to ask for too many opinions. Yes, exactly. Well, as you said earlier, you know, some people are just going to reassure you and tell you to go ahead anyway. So, which you yeah. do need that encouragement sometimes, but yeah, listening, yeah. learning to listen to and having confidence, I guess, in your own uh, intuition yeah. is very powerful. Yeah, and surrounding yourself with like, you know, a couple of friends who you trust and who are on the same wavelength. I think most most of us need like a tight crew who we can kind of laugh at and be irreverent with and it's like your sounding board just you know having the women that you trust enough to be able to do that with I think that's important too yeah well thank you so much for your time today Hetty I really appreciate you chatting with me and good luck with your new book coming out (laughs) thanks for having me that was Hetty McKinnon cook food writer editor and publisher of Peddler and host of the house specials podcast which you can find at peddlerjournal.com Her new cookbook, To Asia With Love, will be out in Australia in October and we'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.